Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. I have a very special program lined up for you today. A unique take for us today, we're going to interview a filmmaker by the name of David Fairhead. And David's joining us from England, actually, on the line today. And to say I'm over the moon about his new project to be an understatement, he's just produced this film called Armstrong, about Neil Armstrong, timed exactly around the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And so we're just very, very excited about this today. David and I both share a love for space exploration and have a great admiration for Mr. Armstrong. So I'm excited to spend some time with him today. Uh, David Fairhead, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be on the show. Now, before we kind of delve into this particular program, you've been a part of over 30 films and many, many more beyond that. How did you get started in storytelling and the film business? Well, at the age of 17, I had a sort of light bulb moment. I'd always been interested in, you know, home movies and movies. My dad had a little cine camera. And I'd never really put the connection together that you could make your own films and make that a job. And um, at the age of 17, there was a question set in one of my exams when I was still in school. And it just it lit up like a 100-watt bulb. And I suddenly realized, wow, this is what I could do. This is the job that I could pursue, the career. And so I went to university and I studied film, practical filmmaking, not theory. Mm-hmm. And I kind of never looked back when I left university. So this is way back in 1984. My first job I got was as a trainee assistant in the film cutting room mm-hmm. uh, in London. The bottom of the barrel, right? That's right, yeah. yeah but it's where you've got to start. Right. You don't start at the top. You start at the very bottom and you're yeah. making tea and you're making coffee and you're picking up little film trims because it really was on film back mm-hmm. in the day. And you're assisting that editor and you learn so much from them. And since then, you know, I was an assistant for about three years. Then I got into editing in my own right. And it just carried on. And, mm-hmm. you know, word of advice I was given was never turn a job down. Right. And so I've worked in so many different fields, you know, sports, news, drama, documentary, comedy, etc., etc. But funnily enough, I just kept always being pushed and coming back to documentary. And then more and more into things that I was really interested in, like I've done so much science and history Uh programming for the BBC and Channel 4, another UK channel. And then in 2006, 2006, I edited a film called In the Shadow of the Moon, which won uh, an award at Sundance. And that really set me on my path to making endless films about the Apollo program. And I have to say, I still find it as interesting today as I did then. Well, you know, for me, you know, Ireland's small country, everything's small and this and any. And the thought that the Yanks, as my father would say, could put a man on the moon, mm. it was just beyond all scope. And I never forget, I brought my dad. I, I think there's three places every American should go to, Washington, D.C., Normandy, and the Kennedy Space Center. And mm. I took my family down there. And my dad was actually American-born, and he went back to Ireland when he was seven. And we were walking in, and the Kennedy Space Center, as you know, has the entire Apollo rocket suspended from a ceiling, you know? Like, right. it's the length yeah. of a football field. And my old mm. man looks up, and he goes, man, the Yanks can do anything, can't they? <laughs> it <was> just, <laughs> but it's just bigger than life, larger than life. You know, this big goal that's set out there, we're going to put a man on the moon, bring him safely to Earth. 
it's been phenomenal. And so for me, I've had a fascination with it. And obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about Armstrong ourselves, whether it's we've had Neil Armstrong, we've had Jim Lovell, Gene Cernan. So I had the first man on the moon and the last man on the moon on our program. So we're uh, brothers from a different mother when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> so how did you end up making Armstrong? Where did this all come from? Well, you mentioned Gene Cernan there, a colleague of mine, Gareth Dodds. I edited Last Man on the Moon, the film about Gene Cernan. Right. And a couple of years after we had made that film, Gene sadly died. Mm -hmm. And so Gareth went to his funeral. And at the funeral, he met a chap called Jim Hayes, who's an American businessman. Mm -hmm. You know, they were introduced. And Jim said, I really loved what you did with Last Man on the Moon. How would you like to make a film about my friend Neil Armstrong? And that's where it started. And so just a simple conversation. And that was probably two years ago now. We wanted another project. Gareth and I worked with another chap called Keith Haviland. And we were looking for a project. And and this one just landed in our laps. Mm -hmm. And so we got together with Jim and uh, a company was formed. And we started to come up with ideas about how we would tell the story. But what we knew we wanted to do is we had to get under Neil's skin. Right. We had to understand him. He's not an easy man yeah. uh, to make a film about, right. strangely. You know, he'd had all these amazing achievements. He was an action hero in his own way. Right, sure. <laughs> and he would probably hate to be described as both. Yeah. But he was. But to get underneath Neil's skin, we had to sort of dig quite deep. And so that was our ambition with the story, to leave people with a sense of understanding the man. I told my wife the other night, she's, a, she's an American girl, played for the U.S. Olympic team in volleyball. But I said, you know, I've watched all these programs. I've watched the movies. I've watched all the different movies that have come out. And I thought, this is the first one that explores the guy that I knew and that I built a relationship with. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, it would take an Englishman to do that, you know, because the Yanks tend to be more out there. And, and of course, we live in a very self-promotional culture today. Mm. And there was a different era back then to start with. But on top of that, he was a very unique character. He was all about being a pilot. He was all about being a test pilot. He was all about the technique and the skill and the adventure and the exploring of it. You know, he saw himself as nothing more than that. And then on top of that, he's extraordinarily quiet reserve guy. So I think British sensibilities, the stiff upper lip, all that stuff. I think that's one of the reasons you might have well found this guy, because yours is the one program that I've looked at and go, well, that actually looks like the man I know. Well, that's very interesting. One of the people we interviewed was Mike Collins. Yeah. And he said a very similar thing. He said, I think it takes somebody outside of our culture, i.e. Mm-hmm. the U.S., mm-hmm. to look at somebody like Neil and appreciate him, because it's not all about the flag waving. Right. Neil was a very reserved person. He was somebody from a different era. Yeah. You know, my dad was born in 1930 as well. Right. And so I understand people of that era. Right. And they are different from people today. But Neil's achievements, he never, ever wanted to take center stage for this stuff. But he knew he had to because he was the commander of the mission. But he did not want to claim credit for this. There were 400,000 people behind him to put him and Buzz on the moon. And he did not want to take credit for that achievement. No. I'll jump out of skin here a little bit. I, I'm going to tell you the story of how I met him, and I think you'll find it fascinating, and it'll lead yeah, to... Yeah, I was going to ask you. Well, yeah. so I was, again, enamored of the space program. I had gotten all this original NASA footage, and I wanted to do this event in Vegas, 5,000 people, and I just got it in my mind. I'd love to have Neil Armstrong. That would be it. And he had not done public appearances for almost 15 years, because after he mm. traveled around the moon... I mean, every time a politician wanted something passed, they rolled out Neil. I mean, his barber sold his hair clippings. 
So for a very, very private guy, this guy got to the point where he just wanted none of it, you know, became a teacher, and as you documented in the film very well. So I just kept persistent. So we had a relationship to an old speaker's bureau who made the introduction to me, and I wrote him a letter, no response. I wrote him another letter, no response. I wrote him another letter, and he wrote back on my letter, are you going to keep sending me letters? <laughs> I took that letter and wrote, yep, and sent that back to him. But I will say, from the time he agreed to do it, I had two pre-conference interviews with him, and it was brutal. Like, I couldn't mm. get a word out of him. You know, the Irish sensibilities, we have a little humor, you know. Eventually, I'm talking to him, right? There's no Skype, and I'm asking him questions that I'm planning on asking him on stage. Mm. And it's radio silence. <laughs> this is like a week before the event, and I got 5,000 people coming. I go, I start going, I'd ask him a question, nothing. I go, over, over, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you need a beep in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so finally, he comes to the event. He's extraordinarily reserved. We have lunch with my family and this and that and the other and whatever else. And it's an awkward lunch. Going nowhere. My dad was the same age as him. My brother Dermot's trying to break the ice and he goes, you know, Mr. Armstrong, when you were on the moon, I wasn't even on this planet. And my dad, who's a very, very quiet man like Armstrong, just the first time in a conversation, perks up and he goes, uh, Dermot, because of looking at that moon, that's why you're on this planet. Well, Neil Armstrong splits a gut laughing. Thinks that's the funniest thing. Next thing you know, he's talking about playing golf in Ireland and this and any other. Then he says to me, would it be okay if I listened through the rest of your conference? So he listened to every section we did. And mm -hmm. once he saw that I was going to honor him, honor the space program, not just honor him, yeah. he was all in. And right mm -hmm. before we went on stage, he said, would it be okay if we just scrapped all of those formal questions that I submitted? Would it be okay if we just had a conversation? And I'm like, I'm all in. And so we had kind of a tribute to him when he came out on stage. He was kind of moved by it. And he loved it. It was the highlight of my career. I've had everybody you can imagine we've interviewed on stage, and there was nobody like him. So it was yeah. uh, phenomenal. You did extremely well. You found the routine. As Mike Collins says in, in the film, you know, Neil lived in a shell. Yeah. But if you could break through that shell by talking to him about something that he was interested in, right. suddenly he'd be your best friend. Right. So you needed to find the connection, and that's exactly what you did. So well done. Well, and, and we stayed in contact, probably wrote letters back and forward every three months or so till the day he died. And uh, he'd send me little tidbits, and I'd send him stuff. And, you know, I had a plane at the time, and I'd send him stuff on the plane, and he'd send me back feedback. And fascinating guy, fascinating guy. And a real hero because... He wasn't about himself. He was about all this. Here's a question I have for you is, when people see this movie, what do you want them to take away? I want them to take away the idea of dedication to a cause, mm. of being incredibly good at what you do, mm -hmm. so being focused, for not caring about celebrity, because mm -hmm. we live in a world where everyone thinks they're a celebrity now with Instagram and all the right. rest of it. Well. Right. Let's get over that, shall we? Yeah. We're not. We are just plowing our furrow through, and we're doing the best we can. Yeah. And if you're doing the best you can, uh, whatever you do, right. then you're doing well. Right. You know, in many respects, we don't need to celebrate and shout out to the world. Although there's nothing wrong with celebrating, of course. Yeah. You know, but it's really, it's about staying focused and doing the job to the best of your ability. Right. And that's what Neil did. Neil was just, he was a great pilot. Mm -hmm. He was a great engineer. And he just caught people's eye by being good, mm -hmm. not by saying me, 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 but just right. by being good at what he did. Right. And that's how he progressed. Or that's how it seems to me that he progressed. And amongst all the astronauts, most of them had to apply for the astronaut corps. Neil was asked to apply. Right. 
that's how good he was. He was always a contender to be the commander of that first moon landing mission. Mm-hmm. But there's a very important distinction which we, we make in the film, is that he was not chosen to be the first man to walk on the moon. That's a very common misconception. Right. But he was chosen to command the first landing mm-hmm. attempt. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Apollo 11, if something had gone wrong with Apollo 10, there'd been a sort of technical problem, sure. Apollo 11 wouldn't have been the of one course. to land on the moon. And it could have been, you know, Pete Conrad might have been the first man to step on the moon. So yeah. There was a big element of chance in the way that uh, all these things worked out. But I think everyone is of the opinion that if anyone was the right person to make that first step, it was Neil. Well, one of the things that kind of gobsmacked me was when I was interviewing him, was I was talking to him about, you know, there's a billion people watching your work live, and they're running low on fuel. And so the beep is coming in and, you know, there's this whole how much was there 30 seconds left? Was there 10 seconds left? And they're landing. Turns out they were going into a field where giant boulders were and all that kind of good stuff. And I'm like, the whole world's watching you. The gas gauge running to zero. You're done. You know, you run out of gas. You're kind of it's not like you're pulling over to a shell station. You're done. And he just said, well, I just focused on the job at hand. Like it was nothing more than that. Yeah. And it was nothing more than that. And it was like, I was just floored. And I asked him three or four times, like, in a more dramatic way each time to try to get <laughs> more out. And it was just like, I just focused on the job at hand. There was a boulder field. Great. So let's avoid that. And the big thing I would say this, and you saw it with Apollo 8 when they had the thing spiral out of control, which you did a great yeah, job. Gemini 8. Gemini 8, sorry, yes. But, you know, he's had a number of different things. He was cool under pressure. He just did the job. He wasn't afraid. I think that was the key to his success. Is yeah. that you know, not only was he really good at what he did, but he could keep calm. You know, losing your control has probably killed many a pilot over right. the years. But he just worked the problem through, and he yeah. he'd learned that from his earliest days. You know, he was 16 when he learned to fly right. before he could drive a car. <laughs> Crazy. And then he goes to university, but he has to join the navy to do that because his parents can't afford to send him to university. Yeah. And then the Korean War comes along. So he's in the Navy, so he's sent out to Korea, where he's trained to fly a jet first. Right. And then he has this incident where he hits a, a cable whilst he's doing a ground attack and loses five feet of his wing. And he just, he keeps calm. He does not panic. And he works the problem through until he can get his aircraft back to, you know, friendly territory. And then he uh, ejects. Amazing. It was just... You know, keeping calm. There's another thing. Yeah, right. Being a quiet person who can keep calm. <laughs> he should be an honorary Brit, don't you think? I mean, to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You say that very nicely, but right now it doesn't feel like the Brits are keeping very calm at all. Touche. <laughs> Here's something that would be just for a layman like myself. I looked at the film. It's fantastic. I just started thinking, how much film do you have to go through? How much do you have to watch? How much do you personally have to watch to make the cuts and edits and bring the story along? Well, I suppose I'm used to it, so it just doesn't surprise me. But I suppose if somebody was coming to it with fresh eyes, say you were to come to the cutting room and say, well, how much have we got? You'd be horrified because, you know, we do interviews with people which probably last an hour and a half. And we had probably eight interviewees. Mm -hmm. And then there is just miles and miles and miles of archive film that we trawl through you know, from NASA material to news reels to TV stations. So I couldn't even quantify it by telling you how much we have. All I can say is that there must be 
hundreds of hours of material, yeah. and we have to reduce it to 100 minutes, basically. Do you know what you're looking for when you're looking? I mean, do you have a storyboard in mind? It's not storyboarded. I mean, the big difference between making a documentary and mm -hmm. making a drama mm -hmm. is that with a drama, you start off with the script, mm -hmm. and a lot of effort goes into getting that script right, mm -hmm. and then once it's right, you go and film it. Okay. With a documentary, it's the other way around. You have an idea of the film you'd like to make, mm -hmm. but... You then gather all your material, but you don't end up with a final script until you've finished editing the film. So in a documentary, the wow. work goes into thinking about the story that you would like to tell mm -hmm. and then getting into the cutting room with your editor. And that's when you reduce all this mass of material gradually down to this manageable length with hopefully a story that makes sense. So it's in a way, it's the opposite of making a drama. You find the story. So do the interviews come at the beginning or the end? When would you do the interviews? You start your research. Mm -hmm. So you, you have, as I say, you have this idea of this story you want to tell. But it is literally just one page as an idea. And then you try to find your archive film and your photographs and your stills. And you're doing your research on your interviewees. Who are the best people to interview? So, so for instance, we got the opportunity to talk to two of his sort of comrades from the Korean War right. who were still alive which was fantastic. So we could really flesh out that part of the story. Mm -hmm. So that's you starting to work out who it is you want to talk to. We knew we wanted to talk to family. Yeah. So June, his sister, the two boys. Right. We were going to talk to Janet, his wife, but sadly, she was really, really ill at the time. Mm. And in fact, she passed away before we even got the chance to go and talk to her. But I had worked on a BBC documentary about Neil in 2012, the year he died. Mm -hmm. And... I knew that there was an interview with Janet that had been done for that film. It was done by a friend of mine. And that had never resurfaced, but I knew it had been done. Awesome. So I approached the director, who happens to be a friend of mine, and said, Chris, have you still got that interview? And he said, yes. And so we got the interview. We then spoke to the people who hold the rights now, and we got the right to use it. So it's all those little feelers you're putting out. And it helps having, you know, we talked earlier about how long I've been doing this, yeah. 35 years. Yeah. Oh, my God, 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just said it. <laughs> I know, I know. But uh, anyway, so you have all these contacts that you've amassed over sure. time. And you put out all these feelers. And this is how you're starting to collate the film. And you can start to feel how it's going to come together. Mm -hmm. And then you agree with your colleagues. And I work with my colleagues you know, on, on this, Gareth Keith and, and Hannah Reese, who's our line producer. Mm -hmm. And you start to put together the outline of, right, who are the people we're going to talk to? Who is important? And then it starts to come together. So April 2018, we went on our first filming trip. We went to Seattle, to just south of L.A., and then across to Cincinnati. And we picked up our first four interviews. And so then you can start to see what you're getting. Mm -hmm. And then we take that back to the uh, cutting room. In fact, at that time, we were still working on another film. We were just finishing off a film called Spitfire. So that was about to be released. And so we finished that and then came out on another shoot in July. And that was an epic shoot. We went around Juniper Hills where he and Janet lived. Right. We couldn't, unfortunately, it was too short notice to get security clearance for Edwards Air Force Base, although they were very helpful. Mm. And instead, we ended up filming on a dry lake bed in the Mojave Desert, which is very, very similar terrain yeah. to Edwards. Yeah went on a kind of epic road trip across the desert down to Tucson where we went to a place called Space Fest. We picked up four more interviews there. So this is how it happens. And it's hard work, but it's great fun. I could listen to this all day because I think the average person has no idea. I, I have no idea. And I'm involved in some aspects of media and mm. production and stuff like that. How long did it take to make Armstrong? It took, as I said, that first contact with Jim between Jim yeah. and Gareth would have been about two years ago. Wow. 
and then we seriously started looking at it, writing, you know, story ideas and all the rest of it, treatments, about 18 months ago. And then that first shoot was April 2018. Wow. And then we started editing properly September 2018. We finished that round about, I suppose, about March and then into what we call post-production, where it's all mastered and the sound is mixed and, right. and all the you know, master archives ordered up. And then we had our world premiere just over a week ago here in London. How was it received so far? It seems to have been received quite well. <laughs> People really seem to like it. I mean, you know, in the 50th anniversary year, yeah. there's always going to be other films out there. Of course. And, uh, you know, Apollo 11 mm-hmm. certainly went to the market before us and yeah. went to Sundance, all the rest of it. I've yet to see it, but I know that from what people have said, it's a terrific film. Yeah. But I also know it's very different from our film. Very. Our film is the personal. It's the man, not the yeah. mission. And there's definitely space for more than one film yeah. about this amazing subject. Yes, I'm not saying it because we got uh, eight seconds of footage in your movie that, you know, that all of a sudden... <laughs> we're, we're very great. You know, thank you for including us. But from what I've known and, and how I've interacted with the person, it absolutely catches the essence of the humility, the reserved, the quiet. And yet, in the meantime, you captured... He was funny, engaging, brilliant at what he did, and a quiet confidence, too. You know, if you watch that video, that interview we did with him, he had 5,000 people, and he started telling stories... And every one of us was in, I mean, to me, it's the highlight of my career. I've mm-hmm. never had anything like it. I doubt I'll ever have anything like it again. 5,000 people. It was like sitting down on the floor in your grandfather's house while he told you stories. And people were just awed, just spectacular. And then we did a Q&A, a live Q&A, so nothing he could prepare for. And people asking him questions. And he handled it all brilliantly and authentically, and he just was who he was. I really feel like you've captured that. The one question I have that my kids want me to ask is how in the world did you get Harrison Ford involved? Ah, uh, well, that was very good fortune, really. Yeah. But we made the film you know, very closely with the Armstrong family. Jim Hayes knew them personally. Right. And he said, you know, I'd really like to make this film about your father, and it would be great if you would support the project. And they said, well, we'd love to support the project. Mm. So essentially they opened the doors to us, and... We interviewed both Rick and Mark, and then June, Neil's sister. You know, they gave us access to the to farmhouse because June still lives in that farmhouse mm. where Neil was born. And they also gave us these two boxes of Super 8 film with all Neil's home movies on, which had never been seen outside the family wow. before, which was incredible. But at no time did they ask or were they offered editorial control. It was all based on trust. Wow. And we showed them a version, probably what you call an advanced rough cut right. of the film. So where we'd put it together into a story and a structure that we were happy with and we were ready to share with them. Uh-huh. And they watched it. And one of the things in the film, which you'll remember, is that we take Neil's words from all different sources, from interviews that he gave, from writings of his, from speeches that he gave. Uh-huh. And we pieced that together, and we made that this narrative spine right. for the film. And that was the idea of my colleague Keith Haviland. And we needed a good voice for that. Mm-hmm. So in the kind of document that we put together for the film, we said, A-list star, you know, inverted commas. <laughs> and, um, and Mark had seen this. Mark Armstrong had seen this. And he said, uh, after they'd watched the cut, they had some suggestions about, you know, if we wanted to make some changes. But he said, I can see you really want this voice and uh, if you're interested i know 
Harrison Ford. <laughs> no way. If you're interested. I know. And uh, we said, well, well that, that's, that, that we might be. Uh, and <laughs> Han, Han Solo's always at the top of my list. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Rick Deckard is who I always think of. Because <laughs> Blade Runner's my sure. favorite. Yeah, that's uh, great. You could always go Indiana Jones as well. You yep, know, yeah. There's a number of choices of yeah. characters. But anyway, Mark made the connection for us. And my colleague Gareth contacted his agent. And it went quiet for about a week. And then one evening, Gareth, his phone rang. And it was a number he didn't recognize. And he answered it. And it was, uh, hi, it's Harrison. Wow. <laughs> and he'd watched the film. And he really liked it. And he wanted to be involved. Wow. So I made the journey over to Santa Monica uh-huh. to come and do the voiceover record. And he was charming and helpful and collaborative and all the things that you always hope your heroes are going to be. Wow. You said he dropped a little Star Wars reference in there somewhere at one stage yeah. in the conversation. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was chatting with him before we did the recording and yeah. I was telling him I wanted to display my aviation credentials uh-huh. to him because uh, I know he's a great aviator as well. Yeah. And so I told him about this other film I'd done called Spitfire. Yeah. And he started telling me about, oh, I was filming at Elstree in Britain. I was doing one of the Star Wars things, he said. <laughs> <laughs> and he talked about how tucked away in the corner of this hangar where they were filming something with a Millennium Falcon was a Spitfire in its case wow. still, because they were shipped in big shipping cases. And he said, to this day, I still regret not buying it. Wow. But it was very funny the way he just almost just dropped in casually this Star Wars thing. Uh, I thought it was, uh, it was very nicely done. <laughs> very nicely done. Well, this movie is very nicely done. We're very proud. You guys must have been doing your research to find a video from a real estate trainer interviewing Neil Armstrong. So you guys uh, did your homework. Well, uh, yes, we did scour all sources, actually, from the National Archive yeah. to the BBC, NBC, CBS, and YouTube, and uh, and that's how we found your interview with Neil, so I'm, yeah. I'm very glad you put it up there. That's neat. It was a fun interview. I hope you enjoyed it. He was a funny man. He was like a comedian mm. for the night, almost, in some ways, which people wouldn't get. You no, know, they well, wouldn't get that about one of the things the boys were so keen for us to get across is that he was portrayed popularly by the press as being a you know a recluse was the word they always used and he was not by every you know denominator he was not a recluse he was a very busy man and he was warm and he was open and yes he was funny and and that's again we wanted to get that across in the film so we start the film with a joke it's not a you know a gut busting you know (laughs) lol laugh out loud joke but it's, it's amusing, and you can see that the moment you can see that connection in his brain when he thinks, oh, I'm about to make a funny comment, <laughs> and he does, and it's just charming, and his face breaks out in this grin, and it's just, I love starting the film like that. Well, I found that to be very unique, that that was the approach, that that's right where you started, and I thought, very authentic, and I really think you did a great job capturing the man. First of all, I want to thank you for this. I really want to acknowledge you for your work you've done. It's forced me to look up the other work you've done. I just actually downloaded Spitfire the other night, so I'm looking forward to that. But there's no question. It's my favorite of all the genre. A lot of stuff's come out because of the 50-year anniversary. This has been my favorite one. And it's near and dear to me because, obviously, like I mentioned, interviewing Armstrong was the highlight of my career so far. So, mm-hmm. A question I have for you before I get into your personal questions I want to ask you is... What do you think the big takeaway from the American space program is that we're left with? That whole go to the moon, bring a man to the earth before the end of the decade. What do you think is the big takeaway from that whole endeavor? 
The big takeaway, you mean, what does it mean now? Yeah. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of people forget why the space program happened. And it happened because of a conflict, basically, the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, and thank goodness it wasn't a hot war. It was a Cold War, and it was based on rivalry, and it was based on power. But it wasn't based on military power. And the idea of dominating space could have been about military power. You know, there was a lot of anxiety when Sputnik was launched by the Soviet Union that they could use that to drop nuclear weapons. So the Americans, you know, the U.S. knew they had to match that. And that's when, you know, Kennedy declared that, you know, they would send a man to the moon and return him safely to the Earth. And what that did is, is that essentially restored the balance in technology with the Soviet Union and then overtook it because the Soviets actually weren't anywhere near getting right. somebody onto the moon. Right. And so it overtook them. And so, in one respect, it proved the dominance of the West over the Soviet system, which I think was very important at the time. But it also allowed new technologies, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about what those technologies were. People, you know, very sniffily say, oh, it gave us Teflon, didn't it, and stuff like that. Well, (laughs) Teflon had actually been invented before the space Velcro. (laughs) Yeah, all those sort of minor things, which, frankly, are pretty unimportant on the grand scale of things. But what it really gave us was computer technology, and it gave us the miniaturization of computer technology because... Even though the computers that were used in the lunar module and by NASA are, by today's standards, laughingly puny. Sure. The 32 kilobytes in right. the lunar module landing. Yeah, uh, less than a cell phone. <laughs> way less. Way, you know, way less than your fridge. <laughs> but it was what you do with it yeah. is the important thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was the brains of those people working for NASA yeah. programming that very, very limited capacity in those computers that got them onto the surface of the moon. NASA itself, in you know, a manned spacecraft center in Houston, had the world's biggest concentrated computing power, I believe, at the time. And it was they had four megabytes. Jeez. But that's all that was available. Yeah. So that's what they used. They, right. they, they couldn't dream of having the power of your cell phone. So what you're kind of saying is it really did usher in this modern era we live in today, didn't it? I mean, it really became the catalyst for a technological age. It did because it showed people what computers were capable of, but it also showed what could happen when you shrank them down. I mean, for instance, the memory in the lunar module computer, they called it LOL memory, little old lady memory, because it (laughs) was knitted. I'm not joking. It was knitted by little old ladies in a factory. No. The yes and the no, the one and the zero. Wow. And, in fact, they used a very similar memory in aircraft carrier navigation systems as well. But it was taking that idea... You know, because obviously it's not realistic to knit memory for (laughs) the world's computers. But it takes those ideas and got them into a place where people could talk about mass producing them and then about sort of, you know, making them smaller and then doubling the power and doubling the power and doubling the power. And eventually you get to where we are today. So in my opinion, that's the technological achievement and legacy of the Apollo program is computerization that we take for granted today. But I think there's another thing as well. And in some respect, this is more important. It shows what can be achieved when enough people come together with enough funding with a reason to do something. And so Mm -hmm. the Apollo program was set up to challenge the Russians' dominance and to achieve a goal set by a president. 
And it did that. And it did that by getting people to believe in the program and to work hard on it and for the government to give the funding that was necessary to make the thing happen. And all these things lined up. And that amazing, amazing thing was achieved. Just imagine if in the world today, you know, we have other issues facing us. Mm -hmm. Climate change is the one at the forefront of my mind. Mm -hmm. And just what would happen if governments, a government or governments around the world said, we realize this is actually an existential threat, which is what it is. How about we forget our differences and we combine our talents and throw in enough money to make this happen? Just think we could beat this thing. Uh We really could. And I don't just mean by cutting carbon emissions. We could find new technologies that would allow us to to move on. So I know that sounds idealistic and boy scoutish, but if if you could capture that ambition and the talent and the skills of people, the kind of people who worked on the Apollo program, and throw them into something like that today, wouldn't that be incredible for the world and for future generations? No doubt. Well, putting a man on the moon was an unrealistic, ridiculous idea for millennia. And, um, Mm. you know, you think about it. When I asked Armstrong about it, he said, the clarity of the goal and the specificity of the goal and the simplicity of the goal. We're going to put a man on the moon. We're going to bring him back safely to Earth. And then we're going to do it by the end of the decade. It was like the most perfect goal. And he said 400,000 people, you know, all these different companies, all these different branches of the government, all these different branches of the military. He said every night when we looked up, we saw the moon in front of us. We saw our goal in front of us. And that, that made it real clear. So he understood it. I have five questions, David that I ask every guest that we've ever had on the show. And so okay. this is a, just getting a little insight into you, and it's kind of some fun questions we've asked, and it always gives us some great insight. So here you go. You ready? I know you didn't know these were coming, so here they are. I'm ready. Number one, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Oh, gosh, the best piece of advice. Uh, I suppose the best piece of advice was, well, I mentioned one earlier, actually. You should never turn a job down. Right. But one from my dad, I remember, where I was having a difficult time at work on a job many years ago, and I I called him up for some advice, and uh, my dad had been an engineer, uh, an instrument engineer, and he'd worked on some really big projects, and I said to him, Dad, you know, I'm just, it's really grinding me down this problem, and he said, son, just remember, it'll be over. And you'll forget about it, and it'll be like it never happened. Mm. And you know, that really helped me refocus it, because I no longer had to worry about this job I was doing and the sure. person I was working with who I found very difficult, because I knew in a month's time it would all be history. Sure. And it was great advice, because it just allowed me to put the problem somewhere else. Yeah, this too shall pass. There you go. Good advice, Dad. All right, second one. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? <laughs> um... Well, my wife would like this one, probably to be less cluttered. I, uh, uh, you know, I'm not very good at tidying up things. So I'm not one of these people with a you know, tidy desk, tidy mind. <laughs> That's the beauty of the creative process, right? But you know where everything is. Kind of, yeah. I sometimes have to spend a lot of time looking for stuff. But, uh, you know, hey, I, I find other things that I've lost in the meantime. So there you go. I'd like to be a bit more organized in that respect. That's great. All right. What book has been most instrumental in your life? I mean, I'm a great reader. I love reading, but I mostly read nonfiction. And a lot of it I do for research. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always loved books, aviation books and, you know, books written by pilots, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So to actually name one book, 
I would find extremely difficult. I've got a wall of books here, and I'm just looking, trying to look at the title <laughs> to see if one leaps out at me. I couldn't name you one book. Are you a big biography reader? Do you read biographies too? I do. I, I mean, I... I read a lot of books, and I just can't think of one book that stands out for me. But I can tell you that, you know, if I go into a house that doesn't have books, my heart sinks. Mm-hmm. Because you think, wow, how does anyone learn anything in this house? Yeah. How does anyone find anything out about the rest of the world? You know, the Internet's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But there's nothing like sitting down with a book and absorbing yourself and sinking yeah. into it and enjoying it. So I'm afraid I've failed to give you the one book answer. <laughs> no, but you've given us a much bigger answer, which is the power of it and the actual value yeah. of it and, and reading a physical book. I'll leave you on this last one because this would be a powerful one for you. And I ask every guest this question. Mm. You're scrolling through the channel some night and a movie comes on. What's the one movie that you always stop and watch even a little bit of it? It's the one movie you've watched more than any other. Oh, I am something of a movie buff. And again, my answer is a bit like, you know, I love loads and loads of different films for different reasons. And I can watch films over and over and always find something different in them. But my favorite film that I would not be able to to turn off, even if it came on the telly in front of me, is a film made in 1945 called A Matter of Life and Death. Hmm. In the U.S., it was called A Stairway to Heaven. Oh, sure. And Absolutely. It stars David Niven and yeah. Kim Hunter. And yeah. David Niven is a bomber pilot trapped in his burning Lancaster bomber, and he has to bail out, but he hasn't got a parachute. And so in the interim, on the radio, he calls up Kim Hunter, who's a, an American Air Force ground controller based in the UK because it's set during World War II. Sure. And in that interim, as it can only happen in movies, he falls in love with her. <laughs> and then his engines stop, and he jumps out of the plane without his parachute and expects to die. But he doesn't die. And so the film is about how that is resolved. And it's resolved in a really surprising way because he has to undergo a trial in heaven as to why he deserves the life that he has gained by not dying. Wow. And I just love that film. It's the first film I took my wife to see. And she should have learned from that. <laughs> Run, screaming for the hills. <laughs> but I just love that film. And if I see it on telly, like on a Sunday afternoon, yeah. it's, oh, oh, I've got to watch this. Well, that is the best answer to that question I've ever had. It sums up a lot. Uh, it's got aviation in it. It's got a great British actor in David Niven. It's got a love story. So I can understand why you appreciate it. First of all, I want to thank yeah. you for being on the show today. I want to thank you for your commitment to this particular project. It's a real blessing to me to see someone who's honored the man the way he was and done a fantastic job of telling it. And lastly, my kids are Star Wars fanatics, and for the rest of their life, I get to tell them, hey, kids, your old man's in a movie with Harrison Ford, so bless you for that. (laughs) That's great. One up on them. (laughs) I've really enjoyed our conversation, and thank you again as well for doing that conference and that interview with Neil and allowing us to use it. It was really fantastic, and it really plays a very unique part in the film, I think, of telling that part of Neil's story and that time in his life. So, thank well, you. Neat stuff. Appreciate it. And uh, when we finish up here, I'll let you know where you can catch the Armstrong movie and then also get a chance to download it and watch it on your own devices. So thanks again, David. I appreciate you very much, and good luck. I hope the uh, summer in England continues to improve. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been great fun talking to you. God bless. Great stuff. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with David Fairhead, and I hope you go and check out the movie, Armstrong. It's released in limited theaters, so you can Google 
the movie Armstrong and see if it's in your local movie theater. And also, it's available for streaming on iTunes, so you can watch it on your home device. So just go ahead and download that movie. And hey, Brian Buffini and Harrison Ford are starring in a movie together, so enjoy that as well. So we'll leave you here, as we always do, with the woman who was the moon, sun, and stars to me is my mother, Therese Buffini, as she leaves you with a little Irish blessing. Hope you enjoyed today's show. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. 